1: at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
2: Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 219th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is an actress-slash-producer who has been one of America's sweethearts since she was just 14 years old, Jessica Biel. Biel first made her name as Mary Camden, a preacher's daughter, on what became the most successful show in the history of the WB network, Seventh Heaven, which lasted for 11 seasons, setting a new record for TV's longest-running family drama. She was a regular on it for the first six, after which she left to focus on college for a few semesters, and then on films. On the big screen, she has been hard to pin down, having appeared in films spanning the spectrum of genres, including the drama Yuli's Gold, the black comedy Rules of Attraction, the horror flick remake The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the superhero sequel Blade Trinity, the action movie Stealth, the mystery The Illusionist, the period piece Easy Virtue, the biopic Hitchcock, and the list goes on. In recent years, Beale was perhaps best known as the wife of Justin Timberlake, who she married in 2012 and with whom she had a child in 2015. But then, last August and September, she reminded everyone that she is, in her own right, an artist to be reckoned with. Through The Sinner, an adaptation of a best-selling German novel that she and her Iron Ocean Films producing partner Michelle Purple helped to guide to fruition. And in which, over the course of eight 45-minute episodes that aired on the USA Network, she gave the best performance of her career as Cora Tanetti, a wife and mother who, out of the blue, murders someone in the bright of day in full view of many witnesses and then professes to have no idea why she did it. The Sinner wound up the most-watched new basic cable show of 2017. It brought Beale her first-ever Golden Globe and Critics' Choice Award nominations, both in the category of Best Actress in a Limited Series or TV Movie, and 22 years after Beale first made her name on TV it seems almost certain to bring her, in that same category, her first-ever Emmy nomination. Over the course of our conversation, she and I talked about all of the above, and much more. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by two members of our team, which just returned from the south of France, where they spent the better part of two weeks providing tireless coverage of the 71st Cannes Film Festival. Our film editor, Greg Kilday, and our senior staff writer, Chris Gardner, who authors the weekly Rambling Reporter column in the magazine. Greg and Chris, thanks for joining us. Good to be here. Yeah, it's amazing. Very happy to have you both. Welcome back. And I I wanted to have you on today to just sort of recap the highlights and the lowlights of your time on the Crescent this year. But first, just a general question that I'll pose to both of you. From afar, and just reading your great coverage, it seemed like it was a more subdued edition of the festival than any other in recent memory, just fewer films causing commotion, less general fanfare around the festival. Am I imagining this, or was this actually the case? Maybe, Greg, if we start with just in terms of the, the film side of things.
3: No, it was definitely a low-key Can this year. You know, when you, when you talk about Can, there are really two elements. There is the main festival and the center of the festival, the competition. And this year, it was a kind of unknown quantity going in. A lot of named directors, for various reasons, didn't have films up this year. In part, Can was feuding with Netflix, so Netflix pulled out Alfonso Cuon's Roma, some other films weren't ready. And also studios have grown a little leery of Cannes because it happens in May
2: well in advance of award season starting in the fall. But to add to that point, Greg, just quickly, of the last 10 Best Picture Oscar winners, only one did not first screen at one of the fall film festivals. That was The Artist, which did premiere at Cannes, but played at the fall film fest. So you're right. it's not, And there's only ever been one film that won the Palme d'Or at Cannes. And also one best picture. So sorry to interrupt, but that was just to your point.
3: No, and I, and I think this year we certainly didn't see a major awards contender emerge from Cannes, with the possible exception of Spike Lee's. Black Klansmen. Mm-hmm. it got a very strong reception. I think it'll be in the awards conversation. But mostly the films that we saw this year at Cannes, and ultimately there were some good films and films that got critical recognition, mm-hmm. but at best they'll be considered foreign film contenders yeah. come awards time.
2: And Chris, yeah, yeah what about just Chris the general the scene? Yeah, mm-hmm. Tell, you saw a lot of these films that did play there, and I want to ask you about that, but also just the general stuff that surrounds the festival,
0: it, it seemed like there was less of it. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's hard to follow Greg Kildave, who is the the real Cannes guru and the veteran. This was my eighth trip to Cannes, and I think that it was my first time where I had a night at the festival where I had nothing to do in all of those eight years, <laughs> right. which I hope my boss isn't listening right. to this. But And that's a big headline because, you know, n- normally the problem is fitting in, you know, five events that you want to go to at Cannes and some of them start at 2 a.m., you know, so or, or after midnight at least. So to have a night and a couple of nights where there were no major parties and no major events happening is a big deal because, you know, what happens when they release this schedule that doesn't have a lot of A-list stars, it doesn't have these huge ensemble casts that are not these big American movies. When those people aren't coming to Cannes, that means that the that the stars of those films, obviously they're there to promote their, their movies, but then they also partner with brands and have like you know, a jewelry party or a, a magazine party for Vanity Fair or something. It just, you know, dinners, there's a yeah. lot of ancillary stuff that happens around these films. And yeah, dinners or other just like sort of promotional opportunities and where you might be able to go to a big party. And so when they don't have that, the brands pull out, some of the magazines pull out. HBO didn't have a party this year. Vanity Fair didn't have a party this year. You know, there's a guy, Charles Finch, who's, who's a big social guy who always has a party at Cannes every year. And he wasn't there this year either. And then you you don't have like Greg mentioned there was no Netflix and, and Amazon had a movie there but they didn't have a big party and so you know that that seems to be where all like the social conversation is these days in LA like what is Netflix doing what is Amazon doing what are the streamers doing what is Hulu doing and then when you when you have the absence of that in Cannes it's it's really noticeable
3: I think Cannes really owes a big debt of gratitude to Kate Blanchett this year mm-hmm. because in the absence of a lot of stars to walk the red carpet they really relied on this year's jury which Kate headed And so every night she's out there in a different outfit looking great and, you know, supported by a few others like Kristen Stewart, who is also on the jury.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point because, you know, it's one thing to say it's a low-key can, but then when you look at the jury, it was anything but low-key. Right. I mean, to have a president as, as strong of an actress and, and an activist and also uh, a fashionista as Kate Blanchett and backed by Ava DuVernay and Kristen Stewart and other really highly regarded people in the film business yeah. like Denis Villeneuve, and, you know, that creates a lot of headlines too. So it's hard to say, oh, it's a low-key can and not follow it up with, like, the fact that this jury was was really A-list, and, right. and they made a statement. Well, let's talk about somebody who was
2: not there this year, and that is, of course, Harvey Weinstein. How much was his absence felt there? Because this for him was a number of different things every year. It was a place where he would unveil movies. It's a place where he would acquire movies. It's a place where he was very involved with Amfar, which I'll ask you to explain what that is and, and where that stands now. And it's also, unfortunately, one of the places where he was misbehaving to say the least. So I want to ask how his absence was felt in those different areas. Greg, there's no Weinstein Company movie there or being acquired by the Weinstein Company there? Let's start there.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think you can argue in recent years, his power at Cannes was declining. But that being said, every year, Weinsteins would call together the press and buyers for a presentation of their upcoming schedule. And of course, that didn't happen this year since, in effect, there's no Weinstein Company. It's it's just been sold in a bankruptcy proceeding. So in that ballyhooed sense, he was missing, except his name came up at closing ceremonies and really one of the most dramatic moments in, in any Cannes event. Ozzia Gento, the Italian actress and director, was called up on stage to present one of the awards. And before she presented the award, she spoke out and, and said quite bluntly she had been raped by Harvey Weinstein at Cannes, which was his hunting ground. And there were others in the audience who had aided and abetted them. And sooner or later, they would be exposed as well. It kind of took the audience's breath away. Yeah.
2: Chris, that was certainly uh, caused a lot of chatter, what Asia Argento had to say there. Also, though, Amphar, can you just explain what it is, why they are such a big presence at Cannes and how he's caught up in all of
0: that still, even though he's gone I mean, he really almost took this thing down, right? Yeah. I mean, in the weeks leading up to Cannes, there were, and probably maybe even months, but there were a number of headlines involving Harvey's uh, association with Amphar because he had engaged in in what many people describe as some really shady fundraising activities by donating some prizes for the auction for Amphar and then some of the money that they were were getting from this. And it was for the musical that he was launching in New York, Finding Neverland. Right. and so he they were funneling some of the money that they received back into his production and so as a result of that he came under fire as did Kenneth Cole the long running chairman of Anfar who ended up stepping down from his post and so there were a number of other executives who stepped down too so you have you know just these dominoes falling from this major organization which which arguably has done so much for aids research and fundraising and and is really respected but then when this happens you know all eyes come on this can gala because that's the next they had they had a smaller one in new york in between this but then they have this one in can where harvey always had a huge presence he always drew all these a-list stars to come out for it it always happens at the end towards the end of the festival and everyone was wondering, well, what's what's going to happen this year? Who's going to show up? And the answer was not a lot of A-listers showed up. You know, we had a reporter there, Rhonda Richford, who saw Kristen Stewart walk the carpet and then leave and not actually attend the event. And then, you know, there were a few people there, Adrian Brody and some other people, but by and large, people stayed away and it was just filled with mostly international supermodels and and some regular faces like Heidi Klum, who always shows up and is a longtime supporter of Amphar. And you know, you have Alessandra Ambrosio. But, but when you don't have, you know, the A-list stars like Nicole Kidman or Kate Blanchett or these people that were already on the ground, Nicole wasn't there, obviously, but Kate was, and you don't have these people show up. And I think a lot of people just maybe stayed away because it's not the best time to be associated with an organization who's still trying to figure out how they move forward in the wake of scandal. Right. About Asia Argento, I, I was on the phone with her just a couple of days before she showed up in Cannes. I was, I was actually on the ground in Cannes finishing my cover story on Rose McGowan and I, I spoke to Asia and, and mentioned to her that, that I had met her in Cannes in 2001 or 2002, I can't remember what, what year it was, when she was there for the J.T. Leroy movie. You know, she was on the rise, and and I mentioned, you know, we had met before, and she almost started crying instantly when I when I reminded her of that, because she had said what a hard year that was for her, because it was when she claims that she was raped by Harvey Weinstein, and just the fact that she was able to come back to Cannes, a place that holds such such dark memories for her, was a huge thing for for her and, and something that she had thought a lot about and something that Rose was really obviously involved in and the planning of that. So it's just, you know, it's, it's, it was a big moment, like Greg said, but one that she had been sort of mulling over for some Mm -hmm. time.
2: Women were front and center, not only in terms of the jury, not only in terms of Ozzie Argento sort of representing in a way, all the women that Harvey has been accused of doing things to, but also there was a red carpet moment that I think got a lot of people's attention. And I wonder between the two of you, if you can just explain what happened and why that was significant. I I thought it was interesting because the festival seems to have blessed this, even though it was in a way critical of the festival. So Greg, do you want to start on that? And then we'll go to Chris.
3: Well, of course, you know, with the Time's Up movement over the past year, there's been added scrutiny about how women fare in the film business and Cannes being one of the film business's high-profile events has always had very few women in the competition. This year it had three films directed by women out of 21. Some of the sidebars had a, had a better track record. So going in, the festival faced that criticism. In part, I think they tried to blunt it by this one event they had to in the middle of the festival where 82 women representing the, the 82 films directed by women that have appeared throughout the whole history of the festival in competition, walked the red carpet together in a, in a show of solidarity, and then the next day had festival director Terry Frumeau sign an agreement that they would work much harder to bring the number of women filmmakers up to parity with, with those of men.
0: Yeah and it was it was a powerful moment. I mean you had you know led by Kate Blanchett and Agnes Varda who who read a prepared statement and it was organized by this French movement called 5050 by 2020 and it was a really powerful moment like Greg said it as you mentioned Scott too it's sort of critical of the festival by looking back at at their support of women or their lack of support of women over the years but it took this moment to take over the carpet. And this carpet is known for sort of the fashion and the glamour of all of, of all of it. And they switched it and made it just to, you know, made a political statement about the future of the film business. And so, you know, and it's something that we felt for the weeks leading up to it of just the conversations ar- around women in the film business, but then also too, just at the festival, they had this event on the carpet. They also had a panel discussion. And then I attended the Caring Women in Motion Awards where Patty Jenkins was honored. And that night was all about women in the film business. So, so these themes carried through the whole event as they should, because that's where the conversation is right now in the film business. And in order to keep it going, they have to shine a spotlight on all of the good and all of the bad. And this is something that is definitely in the bad category, just their lack of, of support for women. But, and the good was that you have someone like Kate Blanchett leading the jury who can make this powerful statement about where they're headed. Well, ironically, I guess, those women
2: still will not be allowed on the red carpet in flats, right? <laughs> so they're, they got are one step
0: at a time there, I guess. Yeah. But you know, I mean, that, that's also something that has carried over from when there were a few people tossed from the screenings or maybe asked to change their shoes, but it wasn't really something that on the ground that you saw happening this Ganging year. Force. Yeah. I yeah. mean, Kristen Stewart climbed the steps barefoot and, right. and people said, Oh, it was a, as a protest to the flats. But you know, I went to six screenings this year and I saw a lot of flats. You did. Um, okay. so um, yeah. Southeast too, maybe? I, I saw a few selfies. <laughs> That's also been bad. I did not take any myself. Yes. I did not want to get kicked out. I wouldn't so. judge you if you didn't. No. Um, <laughs> well, well, I wanted just to see, you know, I wanted just to be an observer yeah. and see how many people were getting away with it. And right. we, we covered this a lot there just because it really takes away from a lot of the fun that people have at this event and people want to sort of document it. And that's yep. the age in which we live right. for better or for worse. But Terry Fermeaux, you know, has made so many statements about how grotesque he thinks it right. is. And he was warning people on his own to put down their phones, even if they weren't taking photos. So right. he's made this a real personal mission, right. and I think that this really eclipsed the right. flat conversation. You got a little
3: side <laughs> side glance
0: from I, him. from Terry. I did actually. When I I should have just said the person that he warned was me, and I and I wasn't and I wasn't even getting ready to take a selfie. I right. just was holding my phone in my right. hand, and he I just walked up at the at the wrong time. He saw that I had a phone in my hand out, and he like waved his finger at me like. Saying no, and it was, it was, it was a moment because I just thought, oh wow, he's personally warning right. me from even having my phone where he can see it, and so you know that but just didn't shows didn't have
2: that. the the gall to say anything to Kristen Stewart when she walked up to him with her shoes in her hands, not so, at all. Anyway, but Greg, just a quick follow up on can's attitudes towards women. I think everyone can say that you know any reasonable person would say that if society is essentially 50 it's a great goal that the film festival diversity of directors, you know, one day get to be like that. But the reality is for various reasons, which we could discuss, female filmmakers do not account for anywhere near 50 percent of the filmmakers that are out there right now. Right. So just to play devil's advocate, how are they planning to have 50 percent female directors when there are not 50 percent female directors out there? Oh, I, I think given the nature of the the
3: film business around the world, it's an impossible goal. You know, I, I think they promised to increase the number of women programmers, because studies have shown, if you have more women programmers, you're likely to have more women-directed films. You know, they're they're going to be more transparent about which films get submitted to Cannes, which is always a very mysterious, murky process. So, you know, if if they are ignoring legitimate films directed by women, we're we're more likely to know about it. But hitting that goal, I mean, and even this year, it was interesting. There were only three of the 21 films were directed by women, and they won a couple of prizes, like Alice Watchers, Happy as Lazarus was a co-winner of the screenwriting prize, but the women directors did not win the top prizes. Mm-hmm. So even the jury, as much as I know they would have loved to have given the Palme d'Or to a, to a woman filmmaker, it didn't happen this year.
2: And we should note, just for the record, what were the top prize winners overall this year?
3: Well, the grand prize went to the Japanese film Shoplifters by Hirokazu. Curry Adu. Mm-hmm. but number two, the Grand Prix was won by Spike Lee's Black Klansman, and and given that 1989, he feels he was overlooked when he arrived with Do the Right Thing and didn't win the Palm Door this year. Well, he didn't get the Palm Again, this time yeah, around, yeah. but he, he came very close, right. and, and I think he he was happy with.
2: And ironically, when Do the Right Thing lost, it lost the Sex Lies and Videotape, which was distributed by I think acquired there by none other than Harvey Weinstein. So let's come back here for a second to the marketplace. How busy was it this year? I know there was a lot of attention paid to this spy thriller called 355, which basically comes prepackaged with Jessica Chastain, Lupita Nyong'o, Penelope Cruz, Marion Cotillard, and Fan Bingbing, but that's not a movie that's going to be coming out anytime soon. And so were there acquisitions made by distributors who might put something into this year's awards race. And and also just talk a little more about that absence of Netflix. They were absent from the lineup. They were present as potential buyers, but they didn't buy very much, right, Greg? No, Cannes always been a big market
3: for what we call pre-sales. You kind of come and announce a movie that hasn't been made yet. And what was interesting this year is that the big pre-sale movie was this film about five women spies. Now, we're not going to see it anytime soon. There's no script for it yet. But in the past... That sort of pre-sale hullabaloo would have been a movie like The Expendables with Sylvester Stallone parading down right. the cassette. So this year, it did reflect the, the changing times.
2: Right. And and maybe it's not the worst thing to have fewer of the Golan and Globus type stuff that used to <laughs> dominate Cannes. But Chris, let's go to another movie that caused a splash there this year. What the hell is going on with Lars von Trier? This guy was banned from Cannes for the last seven years after making, I think, pro-Hitler-related comments at the festival back then. Now he he got out of jail and they he premiered his new film, The House That Jack Built. This is a guy who's got great talent. I thought Dogville was one of the great movies I've seen in recent years, but he also just seems to feel a need to try to shock people. And in
0: this case, there were a lot of walkouts, right? That's true. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned Dogville is one of my favorite movies of all time as well. And everyone was wondering will Lars venture show up and yeah. and you know in the days leading up we we still didn't know because he's also famous for not flying right. so he has to drive and so you know we had we had been tracking that pretty closely and then all of a sudden you know the red carpet opens for his movie and and there he is and there was a, a huge reception for him when he walked into the palais and he got a standing ovation marking his first time as you mentioned since coming back and then the movie begins and you know this was a, a study of a serial killer with some very graphic scenes of mutilating women and murdering two young children and that you know was too much for a lot of can attendees and and so dozens of people walked out you know this is a a theater that also seats 2,300 people so to have a couple hundred I think it was you know I said dozens but I think that led up to like you know a couple hundred people who walked out who didn't want to sit through that you know on one hand you, you have people saying that sort of torture porn has no place in the festival right now but then you have other people saying it's Lars von Trier. What do you expect? expect? I mean, but this, I think a lot of people say even pushed the boundaries for him and was not something people really wanted to sit through while they're wearing tuxedos and fancy gowns. But at the same time, you have to imagine that is exactly the response that he probably was expecting and probably the response that he had wanted. I think it's yet to be fully resolved, but I think Bjork,
2: who starred in his, was it Dancer in the Dark was the movie she did with him she's recently come out and said that he was inappropriate or implied I don't know if she even directly named him but it was clear that she was referring to him that he had been inappropriate with her so between the nazi related stuff and the sexual misconduct he's really making a name for himself here beyond too bad it can't be more about dogville and things like that well, but interesting he didn't do a public press conference
3: this year which is what got him in trouble yeah. the last time around it kind of yeah.
2: yeah all right so let's close on a semi fun note i guess which is the big out of competition showcase this year was a Solo, a Star Wars story, which is going to open here stateside on Friday. It literally came with a lot of fireworks there. I know it was a kind of a big thing, on top of the fact that Alden Ehrenreich, Amelia Clark, a lot of the people associated with the movie were there for that big unveiling. How was it received critically, Greg and Chris? Do you feel that people came out of this thing talking about it, buzzing about it in the way that suggests it will? do well here or I mean it's just coming only a few months after the most recent Star Wars film The Last Jedi are we reaching a breaking point but
3: well, I, I think the reaction was kind of tepid I mean every film gets a standing reaction it can yeah. so it's a question of how long are they standing right. The one for this movie was relatively short but on the other hand that red carpet crowd isn't made up of fanboys who are obsessing about every detail right. in the Star Wars universe and Han Solo first made his run through the galaxy. I think also, though, what what tempered it a bit was it already had had a world premiere in Los Angeles. So it wasn't absolutely the first time people were getting a look at the movie.
0: Chris? Yeah, well, I'm just bummed I couldn't I didn't go that night right. and to see all the stormtroopers on the red carpet with Chewbacca. <laughs> right. Talk about a selfie parade, oh, yes. <laughs> you know. But yeah, I mean, I think that you know these movies have such a built-in audience that the fever is still there. But will it do Gangbusters business like the previous ones have done? I don't I don't know. I, it doesn't feel that way to me, judging by the response. And I don't know. I mean, Cannes is a great launching pad for movies like this because you have the international press descends upon yeah. Cannes and and there are a lot of stories come out of it and I think that those photos ran everywhere but I I don't know I think well it's interesting because you know Black Panther which opened just a few
3: months ago was a worldwide box office hit It was taking the superhero format and doing something new with it and introducing all these African characters who we hadn't seen with that kind of prominence before. You know, here it is a multi-ethnic cast, which is nice Mm -hmm. to see. I mean, we're getting younger versions of Han Solo and interesting backstory about how he and Chewbacca Is that enough? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's loads of people who have grown up with Star Wars and they're Mm -hmm. going to have an opinion pro or con whether this movie does the character of Han Solo justice. But as you say, it is uh, one more Star Wars movie is coming very quickly
2: on the heels of the last one. Well, it was nice, though, that just because you bring up Black Panther, it did have a presence at Cannes this year, right? I saw Ryan Coogler was there. I don't know if it was for a special screening, but it was, it brought me back to the last time I I was covering the festival there was 2013. And this very low profile, I know it had been at Sundance already, but basically Fruitvale Station, this movie that was still fairly under the radar, hadn't opened, shows up with Coogler, Michael B. Jordan, Melanie Diaz, and Octavia Spencer. And set Ryan on the path to where he is now. It's been amazing to see how and much can happen there. in five I And mean,
3: actually, they showed Black Panther as the first movie in the program they have called Movies on the Beach. Okay. At night, there's an outdoor screening of a movie, literally on the beach. And then he did sit for a two-hour masterclass
2: conversation. Wow. It's nice to see that can can have that kind of uh, effect of helping a career get launched. And, I mean, he's really the toast of the industry at the moment, I think. So... Good to see him back there. Greg Kilday, Chris Garner, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Okay, thank you. And now for my interview with Jessica Biel. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 36-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them. How, at such a young age, she wound up acting, then making visits to Hollywood for pilot season, and ultimately landing her first major job on 7th Heaven. What it was like morphing from a kid into an adult in front of the world complete with acts of rebellion like cutting off her hair and posing for a gear magazine photo shoot that proved hugely controversial. Why, after a brief time at college, she returned to the industry as a full-fledged adult in a highly eclectic group of films, and struggled to keep the focus on her acting abilities and ambitions, while many others were focused on her beauty, fashion, and style. Why she ultimately grew frustrated at the opportunities that were being offered her, or lack thereof, And teamed with Michelle Purple on a production company, Iron Ocean Films, how that production company led them to the center, and in what ways they will remain involved with the center in the future, even when she herself is not acting on it, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Jessica, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. We always begin with just some basics. Where were you born and raised? What did your folks do for a living?
1: I was born in Ely, Minnesota, wasn't really raised there, was there for about six months. My dad at the time was working and running the Outward Bound mm-hmm. up there in Ely, which is right, right by the Canadian border. My mom at the time... I don't believe that she was working full-time. She was a flight attendant mm-hmm. for a, a while and was helping my dad, helping him get through grad school. Mm-hmm. I think she was typing all of his papers at wow. night. Wow. When he would work all, during the day, he would come home, then she would type, and, and then and then she would work at night. I don't know what she was doing at the time. <laughs> but they were just doing these kind of interesting off jobs. Yeah,
2: and it sounds like just from some of the stuff I was reading that... Outdoor activities were were a big thing, but did that mean that movies and TV and indoor things like that would not also have been, or were those also a big part of your childhood?
1: You know, we didn't really watch that much television. Movies were a treat, Mm -hmm. and we went to movies as a family, and I did that a lot as a kid. Mm -hmm. But no, interestingly enough, my television experience was very limited, and I even remember my mom making a deal with me that if I didn't watch television for a year then I could get a Nintendo which I did.
2: Yeah, that's, that's the, point. <laughs> the
1: one thing I was allowed to watch that was America's Funniest Home Videos so I couldn't watch TV for a year or something. Maybe I'm making this more dramatic. I'd have to ask for the actual true story. Maybe, maybe it was only six months or something but I managed to do it and I got my
2: Nintendo. Very nice. When did you first try acting, just even, you know, at a fun or a local level, forget about, because I know, obviously you started professionally young too, but just what was the first bite of the apple?
1: I think the first bite of the apple actually came from an interest in singing. My mom took me to her singing lesson that she was doing. We were living in Connecticut at the time.
2: Where in Connecticut? In I'm from Connecticut. Danbury. Yeah.
1: We lived in Danbury and Simsbury. Simsbury first, yeah. and then Danbury I feel like the story is she didn't have a babysitter. Therefore, I came along to the voice lesson and she was doing it for fun. I said, I want to do that. And then she gave me the voice lessons instead of keeping it for herself, which is, you know, I think back to it now, now that I'm a mom and I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> what moms do for their kids. Right. We give up all the things we love. Right. We give them our cool things. <laughs> and we, we don't even think twice. You just you just do it. You sacrifice because you want them. Right. You want everything for them.
2: Was there also something about a. Annie on Broadway this came up in the last time we spoke in 2012 so I wanted to follow up on that <laughs> yes.
1: so the singing lesson started then and I think I was around seven
2: mm-hmm.
1: six or seven because we moved from Connecticut when I was about eight so what happened was I was doing these singing lessons And then there was sort of a casting call that we maybe read in the paper or something about Annie on Broadway and that they were seeing young kids. So we went to New York and I did the audition and I got called back and got called back and managed to get down to the last 30 girls and then got
2: cut. And that was at a time when you'd never, I mean, how much acting could you have done before that, but you had not done... Even like in school stuff, probably before that.
1: Honestly, I don't think so. Maybe little schooly things, yeah. but so insignificant that it wasn't, I really don't have a recollection yeah. of anything before that, yeah. truly. So when that happened, I think that was the bug because I just, I remember sitting on my stairs, on my staircase at our house in Danbury and just literally crying my eyes out for hours and hours that my life my life is over because i mean i did Annie. not get any <laughs> i will not be on broadway i mean i didn't even know what that meant and like right. the kind of commitment that right. that would have been
2: it
1: would have been, <laughs> been horrible probably i probably would have not made it been you know like i don't want to do this anymore you know of right. course who knows what it would have been like <laughs> i think that that was the bug yeah
2: So you mentioned that you guys moved again after that, and that was to Boulder, Colorado. Mm -hmm. So how in Boulder, Colorado, do you learn about the International Modeling and Talent Association, which I don't believe is based in Boulder, Colorado or anywhere near Boulder, Colorado?
1: Right. It's not. So we learned about that because we got involved with a talent agency in Denver. Mm -hmm. I was doing commercial acting classes in the summer for fun. Mm -hmm. You know, how to like I love Diet Snapple. It's delicious. You know, literally that simple. Right. And it was fun. And my mom would drive me to Denver and I would do my class. And my brother and I, my brother would hang around with her and then I, we'd go home. Mm-hmm. And the owner of that agency, I think he, her name is Diane mm-hmm. Diane McFarlane. And she she said to my mom, you know, you, something like maybe your kid has a good look and, you know, she's, she's got something. Right. Do you want to be a part of this I am TA, which basically we bring kids from out of town and we will train you and we will help you prepare your monologues, your songs, you know, modeling walks, dancing, all of it. And then we'll take you to Los Angeles and you will compete for a week. And I I don't remember how, you know, I, I don't know if I just said yes and my parents were like, OK, they probably were just You know, I I was enjoying myself. So they're like, why not? Right. I don't know if we'll get anywhere from this. And that's how we got introduced to the IMTA.
2: And so you go out to LA for that week, you're eleven. Again, as you as you mentioned, part of the appeal is that you're being seen by people in the industry for Mm -hmm. the first time and how did that come out?
1: So it was great actually. It was a really fun experience. I remember enjoying myself. It was, you know, what I loved doing. And by the end of the week, what happened is they, they would basically give you a callbacks kind of, yeah. and they would give you all these names of different casting agents or managers or agents that were interested in meeting with you in person. Mm-hmm. So I got a big list of all these people that wanted to see me in person and, you know, kind of go around the big ballroom, mm-hmm. sitting at different people's tables and talking with them and Mm -hmm. introducing yourself and whatever. And at the end of the whole week, I ended up winning a scholarship to the Diane Hill Hardens acting school for kids
2: in in Los
1: Angeles. And that was a huge thing. I didn't know her. I didn't know anything. We didn't know anything, but... (laughs) She said, you know, come out. I would love to manage you. I would love for you to come to my school and come for pilot season. Did
2: you guys even really understand what that meant at that point?
1: No, definitely so not. For
2: somebody who's listening, and has no idea. What would that mean for a, not only a kid, but for anybody to come out for pilot season? Right. What does that entail?
1: So pilot season is a certain amount of time of a few months of the year where it doesn't really happen as consistently now mm-hmm. as it used to, mm-hmm. right? Because the content providers are so unusual. Right. So it's a little different now. But back in those days, there was a few months, like in the spring, I think, and it's when all the pilots would be casting, hence the uh, the term pilot season. Mm-hmm. And you just go out and you would, you know, audition hopefully for everything, anything and everything under the sun. And that was sort of the big moment to get a show, mm-hmm. get on TV and at least or get a pilot and hope in, in hopes that it would get picked up.
2: And so this lady who you've now got the scholarship with is saying stay or come back in, what, the next year? Or when were you gonna now have your first taste of pilot season?
1: So I don't remember when IMTA was. Mm-hmm. When was the big earthquake? Because we were in LA in that hotel for that massive eight point something earthquake. What, 94? 90 92? 94, yeah. 94. Yeah. Whatever month that was, that's when that's the IMTA where gonna, was, <laughs> and then so that that way I could yeah. then go back and figure out when the next pilot season. I don't remember though. So you
2: came back a year so or we, later. Or we whatever. came back,
1: however many months yeah, later, yeah. and we stayed at the Oakwood Apartments
2: yes, for that's three. That, you can't imagine how many <laughs> times that's come up on this podcast. <laughs> I mean,
1: everybody stayed there <laughs> yeah. because that's where you stayed. Right, right. And by the way, it was so much fun
2: because well, there's a lot of other kids in the tons same of boat, boat. Right? Yeah. A bunch
1: of kids from out of town. Everyone is like. Doing the same thing and cool and excited to be there. Month to
2: month furnished rentals. Month to month (laughs) furnished
1: rentals with a big, a couple of pools and a volleyball court. You know, it was, as an 11 year old, it was heaven. Yeah, it's like camp. It's camp. Yeah. It was so much fun.
2: (laughs) So the first pilot season that you were out here, maybe I've got this wrong, but is that the one where Pringles comes along? Like you started getting commercials and stuff, not necessarily real roles. But commercials?
1: I I think maybe. Honestly, I don't remember if it was the first one or the second one, but Pringles was either first or second. (laughs) And the limited two, I was modeling for kids, the kids version of the limited. Funny enough, with Jessica Alba, really, we were modeling together (laughs) and there's, there's old photos of us like so little with, you know, funky teeth and (laughs) bushy eyebrows. It's actually really sweet. Uh, We were doing that and that was kind of it. It wasn't very much. I really didn't, I didn't really strike anything at that point. And logistically,
2: how would this work? So would both your parents be out here for whatever three months with you or it would be a rotation or how would you make it work?
1: Mainly it was my mom. My mom Mm -hmm. and my brother would come Mm -hmm. sometimes. I believe he would come for a while, but my dad was always at home with my brother. And then maybe they swapped on and off. I was never without guardians ever.
2: So when you were... 14, maybe even 13. Mm -hmm. How did a pilot called Seventh Heaven first cross the radar? And when it did, was it just another in these, like, probably long line of pilots that you were made aware of? But, you know, or did you look at this and say, I'm particularly excited about this?
1: I would assume it was probably one of those ones that. We were all really coveting, you know, because of where it was going to be living and who was behind it and how many kids they were hoping to cast in this big family and thinking like, whoa, maybe I would actually have an opportunity for this thing. Perfect age. But then again, if everyone was going to be super blonde or redheaded or, you know, tan and dark hair, like I may not fit. So. It was a little bit of a, a shot in the dark, but I know we were excited about this one because this was a
2: real series regular. And you mentioned who's behind it. I mean, this is Aaron Spelling, right? This mm-hmm. is about as, as big as it could have gotten at that point. For, Definitely. And it was always, from the minute you first heard about it, it was going to be a, the WB, right? That was Yes, I
1: think so, yes.
2: So do you remember what the process was? Was that Were there a bunch of auditions or chemistry things? Or how, you just how did it all go down?
1: There were definitely a bunch of auditions. I just remember a lot of people behind a big table (laughs) and coming back in multiple, multiple times and then sitting out in a waiting room with all different types of kids, you know, girls who were, for for my part, also younger girls and little girls and then older guys because they were sort of doing this, like not necessarily chemistry, but like a matching kind of, we'd come back into the room with a group with, you know, Someone who could play Simon and who could play Ruthie and then Lucy and then me. Right. And we'd all kind of stand there and we would, they would ask us questions and we would be cute and we would talk <laughs> and try to do what we thought they wanted us to right. do. Send us back out. and We right. wait again in the waiting room. And then they kind of reconfigure the group right. and some, you know, we'd go back in. I'd go back in with a new set of people <laughs> or a new group would go right. in. So there was all this kind of aesthetic family matching going mm-hmm. on. And the, the one thing I remember about my audition, I'm really not sure why I chose to do this, <laughs> but I do remember in the scene, Mary Camden is, you know, a basketball player and an athlete. And so that was the part that I thought, well, I'm good for this because I am an athlete right. and I could do this really well. But she's spinning a basketball on her finger in the scene. So I did it in my audition without a basketball. <laughs> just fake. You're a good mom. So I'm sitting there right. going like this, you know, like tapping the imaginary basketball. Right. And I think back to that now, going, these people either loved it <laughs> or they were like, oh, dear God. We're going
2: to have to put her in for some extra <laughs> <This> schooling. <one.
1: laughs>
2: so how did you find out you got it? And was that just like the, the biggest thing that had ever happened?
1: Yes, that was the biggest thing that had ever happened to me in my my young life. <laughs> my mom and I were driving in our silver Subaru <laughs> which I subsequently years later completely totaled on the set of Seventh Heaven actually.
2: How did you do that?
1: I was learning to drive. I was 15 uh-huh. and I, you know, had my permit and my mom said I could back the car up and turn it around out of the parking space to be prepared to leave. Right. I wasn't allowed to drive out of the parking right. lot. I popped the clutch Shot myself backwards, hit the school trailer, hit Mackenzie's school trailer, knocked it off its hinges, and literally almost killed my brother who was standing like next to the
2: car. Oh my god! Well, Subaru had a lot, saw a lot of things. Oh my god, yeah. it was it
1: was very scary. So years before, we're in the car, we're on Sunset Boulevard, which I felt was a little bit kind of perfect. Like, right? Iconic that you're on Sunset Boulevard. And Diane, my manager called us and my mom had it on speaker and she said, you got the part. And my mom pulled the car over and we just screamed (laughs) and beat the steering wheel and jumped around, you know, in our seats and just screamed and screamed our heads off from, you know, forever.
2: Now we should note that this was for a pilot. Like all that you really knew at that point was that it was proceeding, but that This could still never see the light of day, right? Yeah, exactly. But it was still obviously a a huge deal. I guess from my understanding, it was after the pilot was shot, but before it was picked up that you then go and do this movie, Yuli's Gold, with Peter Fonda, which he gets nominated for an Oscar for, means a lot of people are now going to watch it and also see you. How important was that?
1: So that happened literally... Right after I get Seventh Heaven, then I get this other thing, which mm-hmm. was the second greatest thing that ever happened to right. me in, my, in my life. And that was a cool audition, I remember, because I had gone in all dark makeup and short skirt and like kind of rough looking and really tried to create the part. Right. So that was fun. You know, I enjoyed that. It was just so exciting. You know, I didn't really at the time understand who Peter Fonda was
2: right.
1: and you weren't um, watching
2: Easy Rider. I wasn't watching
1: Easy Rider, which right. <laughs> was probably a good thing. Right. I don't yeah. know. Right. But yeah, so, so we shoot the pilot and then I go and I shoot this film in Florida in this really small kind of beachy tiny tiny town in Florida had the greatest time had had so much fun and didn't have any really understanding of you know anything in terms of him being nominated and Cause people because this
2: was your first movie this was right? my first film ever yeah.
1: and it was extra cool because we got to go to the Sundance Film Festival with yeah. it the first time I've ever done that Right. we did that a, a while after the film was released or maybe right right before mm-hmm. its actual release. I don't even think I remembered, like none of that made any sense to me, nor did I care. It was just, I was excited <laughs> right. to be there. <laughs> right,
2: right. So you come back, Seventh Heaven gets picked up, and now you have to go to work on a show that's gotta put out 22 episodes a, right. a season, which is a lot. How did you acclimate to having a full-time job for the first time?
1: I think it was just so fun and so exciting and so nerve-wracking and so new. And everybody was nice. Everybody was cool. It was such a warm set to be on. And I knew nothing else. I knew no different, really, besides the movie set that I was just on, which right. was kind of the same thing, because Peter's a lovely
2: person. But did this mean that you were now, so you're presumably moving, you're now living in L.A., right? You're, which I guess would mean one of your parents you're not going to be seeing at, at all times. Your friends you're not going to be seeing anymore from back home for, you know, unless sporadically, yes, true. you're out of your old school, a lot of things in your own life are changing and you've now got a full-time job that's <laughs> a lot of hours at the age of right. 14.
1: Well, now that you're saying it, it sounds terrible <laughs> and really hard. I don't know, how did we do that? I right. don't even know. Right. I, I don't have any recollection of being scared or having a hard transition. <laughs> I mean, I think working a lot of hours probably was a real change yeah. and also going to school, of course, because there's our you a know, whole school element.
2: So that was onset element, tutoring? Or right, what? onset yeah. tutoring yeah. with
1: Beverly Mitchell and we were the closest in age, so we had school together and then David and Mackenzie kind of had school, sort of, and Barry was out of school, so... We had a lot to do. You know, our day was pretty full and it was it was pretty exhausting, I think I remember, but it was fun. Yeah. You know, there was it it wasn't deep, it wasn't heavy. I mean, it's also probably why I look back at my performance on that show and I cringe sometimes because it's just it's just not good. Do
2: you feel that way, really? Well,
1: yeah. I mean, I was so young and I and I hadn't really had all that much training and I hadn't really I had, I had almost no experience.
2: So you were on there for the first six seasons and then sporadically, I guess, seven, eight and ten. What's it like when you're having to play a character over that long a period of time, like at any age, but but particularly at that age when people maybe don't have the attention span they will grow into? Like, do you just get sick of the person after a while or, or did you somehow really connect with this character or what was the... Also on a show like that, like any show, there's, you know, I would imagine there's limitations of what the range of experiences and emotions and whatever you could have with the one character is. How did you feel as time went by?
1: I mean, I think I definitely sort of butted up against those limitations and those boundaries for a multitude of reasons, mm-hmm. because, yeah, you, you know, you can only do so much with a particular character on specifically on a show like that. Mm-hmm. You know, we really had to sort of stay in the boundaries of a somewhat religious family and teaching lessons. And, you know, when you're 16, 14, 15, (laughs) 16, you get to a point where you're like, oh, man, I just want to do something different. I just want to cut my hair and Mm -hmm. I just want to dye it a different color. And I, you know, I can't do all these things because I have this contract and I'm.
2: But you did do. Did well, you I, do that right I did. I, yeah. I did cut my hair yeah.
1: and I got in a lot of trouble for that <laughs> Um when I had to apologize to everybody, right. which is sort of the theme with my experience. Right. On I was like always apologizing.
2: Uh, isn't it funny? Like uh, now the stuff that people do, it, it, it makes that look like, I mean,
1: we were angels. Right, we were right. really.
2: Why do you think the show was as popular as it was for as long as it was? Just to go over some stats. It lasted 11 seasons. Again, you were there for Fully Six and parts of three others. It got the largest audience of anything that was ever on the WB network on February 8th, 99. That was when 12.5 million people watched The Birth of the Camden Twins. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, with its 10th season, it passed the Waltons and Little House on the Prairie to become the longest running family drama in TV history. That's it's obviously meant a lot to a lot of people. Why do you think that was?
1: I can only guess that it meant a lot to a lot of people because... There wasn't that many things on the air like this, and I think kind of a simple, sort of uncomplicated, with their own functional complications, you know, a family unit like this. I think you can sit down with anyone in your family, young kids, old kids, and you're never worried that something's going to be inappropriate. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about things that every parent and every kid is going through. You're seeing someone close to your age range that mm-hmm. you can relate to. And I think it was just kind of one of those sweet kind of nostalgia things that that people just kind of grew up on mm-hmm. and they remember with with warmth, yeah. you know, that they're like, "Oh yeah, I learned I hear people all the time say to me, I remember that one episode and I was kind of going through that thing at school and like you were doing that thing right. and it's really sweet, you know,
2: it's sad because I don't know if a, if somebody would even green light a show like that today. It feels like every even kids grow up so much faster. It's not been that long, but it just does feel like almost like a, a great time capsule. I don't know if like now they'd be talking about, you know, sex thing or something. <laughs> it would be a very different thing, but
1: it would probably be very different. Yeah, I don't know. It is kind of like a time capsule thing. Yeah.
2: So during hiatuses, though, which I don't know, how many months a year would you not be doing the show?
1: Only about three.
2: Were you using those months as a vacation or, or going out for other things? I had read, and I don't know if it's true that at one point you, this would have been late 90s, did you go out for American Beauty?
1: I don't think I auditioned for it. Yeah. Maybe I was being considered, right, right. but I've heard this before. Mm-hmm. And when I think back in my memory, it's confusing to me if it actually right. happened or if it's something <laughs> that I was just, that I heard. Right, right. I don't know. <laughs> I don't remember.
2: Just to come back to where you were saying you were always having to apologize. Now I think hopefully it's something you can laugh about. But in March 2000, you had a bit of a a scandal of those days, right? With this Gear Magazine cover where I don't even know what Gear Magazine is. But I guess that you were 17. It came out when you had turned 18. But it was a pretty risque photo. And the way you've talked about it in other things, you were not happy that you did it once, you know, it became clear that what it was. But I guess the question is, at the time, even just going back and reading articles at the time, there was a debate where, was this a calculated thing? Like, I'm now going to be transitioning into more mature roles. It's time to see me not as the pastor's daughter, but, you know, I can be other things. Or was it actually just a situation gone awry on the set of the photo shoot?
1: I guess it lives in a gray area somewhere around there. Definitely wasn't a calculated move on my part. Right. I was not that smart <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> to be making these calculated moves. Right. I think I was, I'm 17, I'm a woman now, right. I'm a grown up now, <laughs> I'm sexy, you know, like this type of right. vibe. And honestly, it just went a little awry. Right. It definitely never was meant to be some shocking, exposing situation. Right. And Whether it was my own sort of, you know, ability to try to be my own person by myself, you know, confident woman, I said yes to things that Mm -hmm. probably I should have said no to. It just was one of those things that got out of hand.
2: Well, and it's sweet, though, when, you know, to go back and read it now and just see like you were you were very upset at the resulting controversy. Right. You had to you felt that you had to kind of apologize for it or apologize to Aaron Spelling or whatever.
1: Oh, I certainly had to apologize to Aaron spelling. I mean, I think my entire crew and cast were needless to say, shocked. Right. <laughs>
2: it's very different I, than they what they knew I on mean, the set.
1: And I mean the worst part was I had to I had to go back to work. Right. The <laughs> With thing these. the thing comes out and literally I, I had to go back to work that next day. Morning, and I mean, <laughs> everybody was they didn't even know if they should even look me in the eye, and I was just a mess, and I didn't, you know, it's you're young. You don't mean to hurt people, you're done, don't mean to do this. And really, nobody <laughs> was
2: hurt. It was No, yeah.
1: no, they weren't. But <laughs> at the time it felt so awful. Like <laughs> I felt like I had let my family down. <laughs> I let my teacher down. I left my I let my boss down. I let right. myself down. I mean, it was it was a moment where It was a very good lesson. (laughs) Put it that
2: way. Well, so whether that picture was meant to show it or not, you were now getting older and growing up beyond being able to be just a little girl anymore. And now, so what was the thought process that goes into leaving the show after the sixth season to go to, to college? Or was it just I'm leaving and then college was the thing to do after you're leaving? Or just how did you end up at Tufts?
1: I had just gotten to a point mentally and creatively that I just I just wasn't feeling very challenged anymore mm-hmm. and I needed something different. I wanted to do what my peers were doing and that was go to college. Mm-hmm. And you know that was something that was important to my family and being educated is a, you know, something that, you know, my dad felt strongly about, my mom felt strongly about and I wasn't going to be forced. Mm-hmm. I mean they weren't going to force me to do anything but I just really was craving a more normalized experience Mm -hmm. and uh, I just I think I felt like I needed to take a break and not not be a professionally working person for a while Mm -hmm. so I was interested in going to the east coast and I you know picked up my fisk's guide to 2000 (laughs) and started reading up on schools and of course there were the kind of the regular ones that I was when I say regular, I mean just the ones that I knew about. Right, right. NYU, mm-hmm. you know, SC in California. Of course, the like dreams of Berkeley right. and-
2: The one that always, I wish I went to was Pepperdine. You're in Malibu, right? And right, was, <laughs>
1: Pepperdine, right, that's that's another one. And then I just happened to see Tufts in the book. It sounded cool, yeah. it sounded interesting. I was interested in Massachusetts. I was interested in BC, so that was kind of that area. And then I just went to go see a couple of these places one summery day with my mom. So I I happened to see Tufts on a day when it was beautiful and people were throwing frisbees and hacky sacking on the quad. And it was like idyllic. And I thought, oh my God, you know, I should go here.
2: And so you were there for, I think, three semesters, right? Yes. And were you able to have a somewhat normal college experience? I guess it would have been Pre smartphones, everybody, you know, yeah,
1: pre all that stuff. Yeah, I had a very normal college experience. Yeah, I lived in the dorms. Mm-hmm. I shared a dorm with a girl I didn't know and who ended up becoming a good friend of mine. And, I mean, I just did everything that every regular old college yeah. kid did: ate ate in the ate in the dining yeah. halls and joined the fun clubs and went out at night mm-hmm. and missed missed class mm-hmm. and you know. Did all that stuff. It was so, so great.
2: So you've said in other interviews that leaving Tufts after that year and a half or whatever to go back to the business was one of the toughest calls you've had to make. What tipped the scale?
1: My intuition is that I felt like, well, if I don't do this now, maybe I won't have another opportunity. Maybe Mm -hmm. I'm losing my opportunity. Maybe I'm losing my momentum. I think there's a lot of pressure around the people that you work with Mm -hmm. that maybe when you're super young to like continue that momentum. I think maybe that was part of it. And also I did miss it. You know, I, I loved it and I hadn't really done that much outside of seventh heaven. So I was, I was hungry for something new and something, something else.
2: And when you came back, those first few roles, when you came back, let's just mention a few of them. The very adult black comedy Rules of Attraction 2002 you have the horror film Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2004 superhero film Blade Trinity 2004 action movie Stealth 2005 these seem almost designed to erase any semblance any any remaining question that you are now an adult and a woman and you're going to be you know doing grown up things and being sexy or whatever it would be is that was there a calculation there or it's just you go from roll to roll and you take the best thing you can get
1: I think it's a little bit of both yeah once again I I don't believe that that I had any real like calculating going on mm-hmm. necessarily but I was drawn to different things I was older I was you know I felt interested in indie films and so like rules of attraction for example it just seemed like such a departure And yeah, I was excited to, to explore that part of myself and explore doing that kind of a character. So I think just my genuine interest had changed. And... I mean, the action films. I don't even really know how that happened. <laughs> that wasn't definitely well, you're athletic, not. Maybe, yeah, I guess. And so I think that's why initially I felt like cool. That sounds like fun. Right. I'd like to be a vampire killer. <laughs> yeah, and I want to train and right. you know build a bunch of muscle, and learn how to shoot a crossbow. That sounds awesome with with Wesley Snipes. Yes, like what right. a good career move. Right. You right. know, <laughs> something totally different. Right. So. I think it's just like trying to do different things mm-hmm. and trying to to carve your path and carve your way and probably making a lot of mistakes along the way but yeah it's kind of as simple as that I guess.
2: Well and then also the other thing I wanted to ask you is that pretty soon after you came back now you are an adult now you're having to deal with something that you previously had not had to deal with which was a lot of people writing about or photographing or whatever just talking about you in a different way. Now You've got Esquire in 2005, you're, you're the sexiest woman alive. You've got a lot of things that are focused on appearance as well. Do you think that, I mean, obviously that's, that's got to be a very flattering and nice thing on one level, but do you, do you feel that it could also have caused people to take their eye off the fact that you, were, that you were able to do the primary thing that you were there doing? Was that purely gratifying to have that kind of attention or did, was it in some ways frustrating?
1: I mean, I think at first it's it's really flattering, you mm-hmm. know? I mean, what do you say? You're like, you guys are crazy. <laughs> I mean, sexiest woman in the world? Come on. But you know what? You said, thanks. Right? <laughs> I would love that. I'm sure.
2: Won't give it back.
1: <laughs> right? Yeah, I'll take it. It's flattering and nice. Everybody likes to be complimented in that way. But I think... As the years go on, and you you know you kind of look, or I look back, and I and I sort of see the struggles that I had. I think every woman in this business somewhat comes up into you know some kind of trying to find the balance between aesthetics and how you feel as a as a human and as a person, and how that collides or coincides with your work.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think everybody has that experience in some way. So. I think at the time I didn't really have that much awareness of it mm-hmm. but as I was plugging along in my career and and it, hoping for other things and hoping to be taking more serious roles or more dramatic roles or like maybe I could try comedy mm-hmm. and not not feeling like I could make any headway mm-hmm. that maybe I was it occurred to me that wow well, well maybe you know maybe I've done a couple of things in my career that have taken the, the spotlight away from my actual
2: craft. Or not that you did anything that's somebody, you know, just the way it. sometimes people are treated. It's not like yeah. you did something, but I mean, the, it seems like the the a year in which uh, you, like, maybe one of many, many breakthroughs along the way would have been 2006 where you have both Home of the Brave, which was a very good movie. Maybe not a lot of people saw it, but people in the industry, I think, saw it. And then also the same year, The Illusionist, which I... Understand was not just handed to you. You had to go and fight for the, that too. These are two movies that, again, with at least within the industry of people who are going to give you future opportunities, they they were pretty, you know, respected, right?
1: I was excited about those opportunities. I felt I felt respected being able to yeah. have those opportunities. I'm not totally sure how it looked to anybody else necessarily, but. That was the kind of work I was really interested Mm -hmm. in, you know, really having to dig into a person's experience that was not my own. And yeah, The Illusionist was a great fight. I I went in my first audition fully in costume. It was like a last minute thing. I don't know if someone had been cast and fallen out or got cast and then quickly or they just didn't find anybody. I don't remember, but it was very, it was like a really weird, quick turnaround. I think they weren't really interested. I had this feeling that they were seeing me out of an obligation as a favor in a a way. So I got with a dialect coach and I worked over these scenes. And then I went to the store that used to be on Montana Street in Santa Monica where I lived called Paris 18 or 1902 or something. And I way out of my price range bought this vintage skirt and this belt and this puffy sleeved top, which I still have to this day, by the way, (laughs) and literally went into this audition. Once again, they were either going to love this or they were going to think I'm a crazy person. I was fully head to toe in
2: costume, not twirling a basketball. This not right. twirling a basketball,
1: but you know, it, it was going to go right. one way or right. the other. Right. Right. And I don't know. I think it. I think it helped because I. I they were quickly shaken out of what maybe they could have thought yeah. that I am, that I was, or who I am, or what I looked like, and if I would fit in that period. And I just went in a couple times and I read with Edward, mm-hmm. and I got the part, which was probably one of the greatest career moments since that, you know, initial Seventh Heaven get on Sunset Boulevard. Right.
2: Well, I mean, and I love, though, because even the next year, so there's this movie, Easy Virtue. It's a period piece adapted from a Noel Coward play. And here you are set in the 30s. You're going out for this. And you said... Quote, it was exactly what I was looking for, something I could throw myself into where everyone is expecting me to fail close quote. And it seems like with a number of these, there's almost this, like you're coming up against how do I combat people's preconceived notions of what I can do? Because I don't think there's a genre here that you haven't <laughs> that's covered. That's true. And maybe that's made it hard for people to, people like to categorize people or whatever. And maybe it just t- took people a while to figure out, you know, what to make of you, right? Totally possible.
1: Yeah. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, if I show every side of me and do everything different and be be able to succeed in every genre, then you can hire me for anything, yeah. you know, but maybe it did kind of fight against that idea. And I didn't even know it. I'm I'm not totally sure. I think I was fighting against preconceived notions uh, from other people, I think I was fighting against preconceived notions I had of myself. Mm-hmm. And just that, you know, that insecurity and that fear of, well, can you do it? Right. You talk a big game about <laughs> right. wanting to do all this stuff. Well, you better put your money where your mouth is. So I was constantly trying to challenge the very idea of who I am as a, or who I was at the time as an artist.
2: Were there things <clears throat> along the way where you thought, because, you know, All you can control is your contribution to a project, but sometimes things around you on a project that, you know, looks to be one way can go in a very different direction. I mean, I think the ultimate example of this, you get a movie in 2000, or you go to work on a movie in 2008 that is apparently (laughs) going to be directed by David O. Russell, and it's going to be called Nailed, and nobody in the world sees it until 2015, by which point David O. Russell has nothing to do with it, and it's called Accidental Love. That just seems like the kind of thing like you must be saying to yourself, like, what the hell?
1: Yes, that that was a what the hell for sure. <laughs> it was such an exciting moment for me to get that part. Yeah. Every young woman in Hollywood wanted to get that part. Yeah. Everybody wanted to work with David. Yeah and that an amazing cast and that crazy script and you just know that the the his brilliant mind you just have faith that he's going to do something incredible and he's going to push push us all and we're going to have cool performances and boy it's going to be fun mm-hmm. and it's it's going to move the needle mm-hmm. you know it's going to move the needle of of my career mm-hmm. and it just did the total opposite it was such um it was such a heartbreak truly and i i i think that everybody on that film feels in 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 some way kind of that same thing because you know we were there on a daily basis giving it our all and we were constantly being shut down and constantly needing money and our crews having to walk off the set because they have to protect themselves and their union we we all understood it Mm -hmm. and it was it was a crazy crazy experience and honestly, I have to tell you, I've never seen that film called Accidental Love. Mm-hmm. I'm a, a little scared of, about it because it was never finished. And it definitely wasn't finished by David and and um, uh, his editors mm-hmm. and his team. So I don't even know what it is. Yeah, It's um, very odd. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, all right. So a few other things that seem to have that I... I read about along the way. And I just wondered if you can shed light on, you know, what the circumstances were around it. I, I, we talked about it in the early years, you were interested in musical performance, musical theater. Mm-hmm. There was an article I saw that said that there was going to be a Broadway musical version of women on the verge of a nervous breakdown that you were potentially going to, you know, looking to do. And then also Les Miserables, the, the movie version in 2012. Um, Were those actual possibilities? And are you actually interested in singing in front of massive audiences now?
1: (laughs) Yes and yes. Um, So Women on the Verge um, was a really cool and interesting piece of material. And they asked me to come and and be a part of the workshop. So I, I, I did just that, went to New York, and we workshopped it for... I think it was a couple weeks. It wasn't very long, but it was intensive. Mm-hmm. And by the end of it, we got to the point where we were, you know, kind of somewhat staging things and singing it full out for all the producers and everything. And um, Bart Scher was the director, yeah. and he was amazing. And I loved working with him. And honestly, after that, they asked me to be in the production because they were going to go for mm-hmm. it. And I'd never done any workshop like that before. I didn't know really what to expect. And I, I just had this instinct that it wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. After going through the workshop, I really loved the music. And it was super challenging and really, really kind of odd, like an unusual kind of um, musical. But I just didn't quite, I, I couldn't quite wrap my head around it during the, during the workshop. I didn't have yeah. a handle on my character. Yeah. And I just didn't think that it was, that I was going to do it. Justice. So I stepped away from it, which was a really hard decision because, yes, of course, back from my Annie days, you know, I'm (laughs) thinking that I'm going to have this moment sometime, you know, on Broadway, on the stage. And
2: maybe it'll still happen. Maybe
1: it will. Um, The Les Mis thing, I auditioned multiple times, multiple times or just maybe two, maybe just one. It felt like I was auditioning a lot of times, but I, I certainly auditioned for it. And um, felt like I had a really good musical audition, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just, you know, just didn't go my way.
2: The last of the last of the mysteries that I want to just put a uh, put a resolution on here. Ten years before it actually happened, was there any chance you were going to be Wonder Woman?
1: Um, you know, that has been like spinning around my kind of. Uh, world for a, a right. while, but it was never anything real. It wasn't. No, I'd never seen a script, or I'd n- I'd never really been talked to seriously about mm-hmm. it. I thought it was a great idea; mm-hmm. <laughs> like it sounded like fun to me. Um, but no, that right. was one of those kind of maybe somebody had said something to somebody, right. and somebody heard it, and somebody said something to somebody else. But it was in in my in like this like my my real sphere. Right. It was never a realized thing.
2: Right. Well, so in 2012, this was the first time that I, or the only prior to this time that I um, interviewed you, I mentioned because it was in conjunction with Hitchcock, which was a very interesting movie. And I think there was actually that same year, was it the, another Hitchcock movie that was, maybe that was the um, HBO movie or whatever about, so it was just an interest, there was a lot of attention now mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. around both movies. And in this case, I remember you were saying I think was it the first time you'd played a real person who mm-hmm. people might actually know or remember, like a famous person Right. in the case of Vera Miles. Just how did you like that, you know, type of challenge? It's different than obviously playing a fictional person.
1: Yes. It, it's risky. It's scary. You know, yeah. you want to do this person justice who's still alive and Vera whose Miles. family, yeah. right, yeah. Vera, whose family members are still alive. Right. and. Um, she didn't she is completely out of the business at this right. point and didn't want to talk to me and wasn't interested in really having any to do with it at all which was kind of a blessing mm-hmm. because I was I was able to just create the sort of essence of who I thought she right. she was at that time in her life and not try to create some sort of bad caricature or something of who she is um I was able to speak to her son, and he kind of gave me some insights as to her personality from his perspective. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of our perspective right, of, right. of who she <laughs> was at the time. But it's it's terrifying, you know. You you don't you just want everyone to be happy, and you want people to be excited about the performance, specifically the woman who you're portraying.
2: Right. Um, around that same time, give or take a year or two, maybe before that even. Um, or before that came out, something came about, I I believe that's the right chronology, something came about called Iron Ocean Films. What is that?
1: So Iron Ocean Films is a small production company, literally, that my friend Michelle Purple and I created. We worked together on stealth. She was running Rob Cohen's company at the time and had previously worked with Spielberg and his company. Um, And we were these two young girls on this big boy action movie in the middle of Australia by ourselves and kind of looking around going, is this, is this what we want to do? Is this what we're doing? Right. This is what we're spending our hard hours on our life on. And one night talking about our favorite movies from the eighties and like what we grew up watching, we said, well, let's make a production company. And she was, at the time thinking about maybe making a change in her professional life, and she didn't know if she was gonna be an executive or if she was gonna to try to run somebody else's company or what. And I said, well don't do that, let's do this together until you know we're so broke that you need to go get a job. <laughs> and she ended up getting married. Right. So. Had some financial help there. Thank you, Bill Purple. Um, and we have been trying to make films and television ever since.
2: And that has included a movie that was went over very nicely at Tribeca maybe six years ago, The Devil and the Deep Blue Sea, um, and uh, even a short film. And right. you guys have a development deal, right?
1: We did have a development yep. deal uh, with UCP, UCP. Uh, which is has been over for a while, yeah. which is ironic because they brought us the book for the center <laughs> right. after our deal was done. Oh, af- how did <laughs> yeah. that happen? I don't that know. Happen? I don't know. I just think it was the timing of things. It just happened, you know, because we didn't care. We really right. loved those people and right. really love working with them. So when they brought us that material, we thought, oh, well, this is, who cares whether we have a deal or not?
2: Well, so before we dive into the center itself, what is it about producing or executive producing or, you know, whatever that, that actually, why is that important to you? Because, I mean, I think it would seem like it's just a way to take control of your own fate a little more than if you're just waiting around, right?
1: Absolutely. And I think that's how, that's really how it began because I had a hunger for more Mm -hmm. and she had a hunger for, you know, doing something that she really believed in and really loved telling stories, telling human stories, telling women's stories. And... We just, you know, I really felt like I needed to take hold of my own career in a different way and just not sit around, wait for the phone to ring. That just, you know, wasn't working.
2: Well, for the reasons we said, sometimes people lack imagination or they just right. assume that you're a certain way because they don't know you or whatever. So I guess, you know, with some of those earlier projects that you guys made, we, you know, that was... Like like The Devil and, and the Deep Blue Sea, there you, you're getting a taste of it. You knew you liked it right away, or is it something—I mean, it's got to be—it adds a lot of work, too. It's not just like a—right? Right?
1: It adds so much work. Uh, by the way, Devil and the Deep Blue Sea, which ended up being called um, Book of Love—sorry. Yep. For so many years, it was, was <laughs> right. one, this one yeah. title— but that's, that's the funny part. It was a horrible experience to get that movie made. Like that? We tried to get that movie made for 10 years before we got it made. And every time we got a little you know forward movement, we'd get excited, something would happen. We'd either lose cast, lose financing, you know, uh, something, or lose the option to the script. And Michelle and I would look at each other and I'd go, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> I'm not doing this. I can't. I can't. And then for right. whatever reason it would come back around and we would say oh we can't abandon this thing this is you know part of us now so it was the worst <laughs> honestly until we finally got the amazing cast and Michelle's husband Bill directed it for us mm-hmm. and Justin did the soundtrack mm-hmm. for us and we just had an amazing experience finally making it it was not easy right. and being a producer is the hardest thing in the world it is so hard Nobody should get it twisted about, oh, yeah, it's just, right, you know, right. we just get some money and make a film. And right. no, it is, you are fighting tooth and nail for every cent. You are trying to fit a puzzle piece together with so many schedules and the right crew and all the, you know, all the cast and all the, you know, your directors, your DP, everybody. It is so challenging, but to work with the writers in the creative space, to develop a, a piece of material from the ground up, to cast fellow peers, that is the joy for me. I love that. I am not a good financial producer. <laughs> I am not good at that. Right. She's good at that. Right. So she does that part. Right. And then, and we obviously have you know similar tastes. Mm-hmm. We decide what we're gonna do together, but I'm more of that creative element. She does it as well, but right. that's what I love.
2: Yeah. Well, so you got a chance to. I mean, it sounds like you, even if the, the first, I don't know if The Devil and the Deep Blue Sea was the first that got done, but that was so you, it was tough, but it probably equipped you to do The Center when that now came along in the way that you just said. Right. For anyone who doesn't know, this is an adaptation of a best selling Germ- German novel. Um, your first, to- it was, well, first of all, when you decided you were interested, was it always gonna be was it always clear you know I'm interested to both act and produce
1: yes this one was very clear to me it was one of those experiences when UCP handed us this book I started reading started reading and I was so captivated and I just I called Michelle I said I have to I, we have to do this I have to do this Character and I, I got very possessive <laughs> over it. I'm like nobody can have this. This is right. mine, right. and I felt that I have never been given an opportunity like this.
2: What was it that that really made you feel that way?
1: I think the complexities, the psychological complexities of this character, this unreliable narrator, mm-hmm. this person who you you have to follow, so you have to like. Yet she does this crazy, uh, violent crime, you know,
2: in the first 10 minutes in,
1: boom, this thing happens. Is anyone going to like this person? How do I do that? How do I get into the mindset of this woman? Am I capable of it? If anyone else saw this, they would want to do this and I would not get this opportunity because no one thinks of me for something like this. So that's the joy. When you're developing your own material, you can claim ownership of it. And if it goes, you know, if it gets, picked up and made in the right amount of time managed to still be in it. I mean, there's things that we've been developing that I've aged out of that (laughs) (laughs) I can no longer play these parts. But this one was just, it was just one of those ones, right? I I just grabbed on and held on with a death grip.
2: Isn't it interesting how much in just the time since 7th Heaven, perceptions have changed about TV? Like in those days, I would. my understanding was that if you started out in TV like you did. The the ultimate thing would be to be in movies. But if you were in movies and you ended up in TV, you're going in the wrong direction. But now film people who made it in film cannot get to TV fast enough, right?
1: It's so true. It's so different. And I mean being in it back then, it it was very pal- palpable
2: mm-hmm.
1: that if you can make it to the film world, you're in. Right. And Watch out if you climb back down and if you're taking TV after you've done some films. Yeah, it's a a bummer for you. It was a real different um, atmosphere and temperature than it is now. Now is just the freedom to move fluidly back and forth from both mediums. I can't even believe it sometimes. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's so amazing. And the, the amount of different content providers, if you have a story that is really compelling in some way, somebody will help you make that. And it just feels like anything is possible.
2: Right. Well, so many people need programming, especially good programming, but they'll take what they can get. And, uh, <laughs> and in this case, obviously it's really good. And it seems like also it's not just do something on TV, but limited series too. You're not, coming back with 22 episodes like you had to do in the, in the old days, you can do six 45 minute or six or eight. I'm forgetting right now. We did eight. With, you guys did eight. So, all right. So I'm thinking six hours, right? My math. No, my maths. Forget it. But like, right. you are doing 42 yeah. minutes, 40, yeah.
1: eight times. Right.
2: So <laughs> whatever that is, whatever I'm that. really bad at math. Doing. Right. <laughs> but I mean, there's something nice about, unfortunately, as the mid range budget movie has faded away like, the closest thing you're going to get to that is a limited series, right? And so right. this is an example of that.
1: This is an example of that. Um, it's it's also such a better medium to tell a story like this because you don't want to drag it on so long that now you're making up stuff and you're searching right. for a story right. and for, well, what does the character do now? And you also... I don't know how we would have done this for as as a film. I don't know how we tell this story in two hours or less. So it's kind of this amazing sweet spot, and you're not you know, you're not signing a seven year contract, which is what I did as a kid, and you never think twice about it. And then five years in, you're like, oh my god, I'm
2: enough. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, The other thing though is that I guess with a movie or a play. For the actor, if it's an emotionally challenging part, you know, you're there for a a briefer period of time. This has got to be the most emotionally complex, challenging, demanding part you've played. Right. I mean, Definitely. this woman's emotional journey is insane.
1: It is insane. Um, for sure. It, it was just the most psychologically complicated. Um, how, how do we you know balance the, the the truth from the lies what she knows what she doesn't know what she's pretending to know what she's what she doesn't know and she thinks is something else i mean the 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 fine line that we we walked on a daily basis was literally mind numbing
2: right and just in case anyone's listening who doesn't know this you guys are not shooting nobody shoots in sequence no. so when you're having to calibrate all right. So at this point, she knew this much or was willing to let on this much. Like, did you actually have to somehow chart it out in your script so that you knew when you were shooting page sixteen at the end, but page eighty or whatever. you know, like how do you keep track yourself of what where you should of how much you know or should be letting on at any at any point?
1: I mean, it was a daily it was a daily check-in with Derek, our creator and writer, and whomever director we had on that day and myself, I would go to them and say, okay. I'm lying, right? And we'd all look and we'd go, right, yes, you're lying, you're lying here. Okay, so I'm, okay, okay, great. And we would go step by step because it was so hard to remember. It was so complex that we did. We just, I would write it out. Like, okay, I'm, this is, uh, this is the lie and we have to, she has to sell the lie. (laughs) Go, you know, it it was like that on a daily basis. Well, and
2: people say like the hardest thing there is for, an actor, and I don't know if, I mean, you, you're you much better qualified to tell me, if, say if this is true or not, but like basically a person, an actor who is having to play someone who is acting, which is in part what <laughs> right. you're dealing with here. Right. Like, because you could just lose yourself there. But it's obviously did not, because just to go over the reception here, this was the most watched new basic cable show of the year and got a little Golden Globe nomination as well, right? Oh, and that little old thing. Little old thing. Um, <laughs> just did what did you make of the of the reception of all these different kinds?
1: Honestly, we were shocked. All of us were shocked. not not because we we weren't proud of the product and that we, you know, didn't think it was a good thing or um we didn't love it ourselves. We just couldn't believe how many people actually tuned in mm-hmm. and then continued to tune mm-hmm. in. And everybody told us from the network, going to drop off second episode that's this is just what happens it drops off really hard right. and then it maybe increases and maybe or it maybe kind of flatlines. lines that's great so we get a great reception you know pilot episode and then second week we all we are prepared right we are all okay this is going to be awful <laughs> and it's but it's the way it goes right boom we have better ratings Nobody knew what to say. Yeah, Everybody on set, we were kind of looking at each other like, let's just not talk about it. <laughs> Nobody say anything. Let's not jinx this thing. Right. And then the next, next episode, more ratings and more. And we increased all the way up. Nobody could believe it. I mean, the people who actually know about these kinds of things couldn't believe it. <laughs> we yeah, were just. Crazy. We and
2: were what shocked. do you chalk that up to? What's the. I mean, aside from the fact that it's good, very good, like, why are people responding?
1: I mean it's a very hard question to answer. I don't know 100%, but uh, the only thing that I can really th- I that I feel like maybe could be true is that the subject matter we're talking about is is hard to talk about culturally, you know? in our society it's hard to say yeah this is what happened to me and boy it was awful Mm -hmm. and I'm I'm a survivor and I'm going to make it through this and I'm going to talk about it and I'm going to feel it I'm going to mourn it I'm going to grieve it I'm going to get through it Mm -hmm. and I think that struck a nerve
2: and a unbelievable timing right because even in just our own industry a lot of people were having to have that kind of uh you know moment themselves and maybe they didn't Kill somebody, but they had—they've had things happen to them, or whatever—and you had to, right? But
1: yes, absolutely. I mean, this character, she, she has and has experienced so much different kind of abuse in her life. Sexual, emotional, um, physical—I mean, you, you name it, she's experienced it, and and it, yeah, it was just such a topical, uh, topical topic of com- conversation that's happening um, it was weird it's weird how, how sort of life is kind of imitating art is imitating life and mm-hmm. that happens all the time yeah. so it just must have it just must have been one of those lightning in a bottle things where it was just that incredible timing an audience was open and ready for it I think also what we kept saying when we were filming this thing is th- this audience is smart Do not think that they are not Mm -hmm. and that they cannot follow and they do not want elevated, elevated, in your face, um, provocative, compelling material. And we kept pushing that idea. And I think there was a respect there that the audience went, thank you. You know, we're we're, we're seeing something we have not seen on Basic cable before. Mm -hmm. This is different. This is exciting. And USA, I mean, it was so courageous. Like when we sold this there, I couldn't believe it. I thought, these guys, this is insane. Why are we even here at this meeting? They're not going to buy this. They bought it in the room. It was crazy. So I think this sort of spirit of just kind of splaying your guts out and just like throwing it out on the table and going, let's talk about it, which was different for that, that network, different seeing me that way, Mm -hmm. different for that particular audience. It was a, it was a brave move and a bold move and it was just happened to have a good reception.
2: Yeah. Well, the last question is just two-parter. What happens to the center now? I know it's coming back, but where will you be? What will your involvement be? And then part B is just, you know, if you have a moment, if you've had a moment to sort of stop and like take stock of, we've now been through just in the last hour, this whole trajectory of a career that started at a very young age just like where you are right now what do you make of it so um <laughs> let's uh let's do part a and then and then b
1: okay um right so sinner season two right. an- another shock mm-hmm. we didn't ever consider that we could come back <laughs> um, and here we are so exciting and cool i am fully uh participating as a producer mm-hmm. I am not on screen at all in this in this um, season, mm-hmm. which is it's complicated for me. You know, emotionally, this is my baby, mm-hmm. and I, uh, you know, it's what I love to do. And to not be on screen sometimes was, is a little challenging. <laughs> right, right. At the same time, it's the right thing for the show, and it's the right thing for this particular set of characters. We are opening up this world to three new female characters, which is super cool. It's what we always wanted to do mm-hmm. is um, you know, provide great parts for women. And um, you know, in terms of following seasons, the coolest thing about this, you know, this ability to tell stories and have control um is it's possible that Cora could come back if if we find the right way in. It's absolutely possible. Mm-hmm. I have no idea if it will happen or not, and that's that's the genuine truth. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting, right, when you when someone's reading you your slate, <laughs> and you're like going, "Wow, yeah, that's oh right." And then that one and that one, you kind of forget All right. what you've been through and what you've done, and to think about the choices you made at the time that you made them and why. And um, it's just kind of surreal, actually, to to listen to that whole life. Or career track, mm-hmm. and then think that wow, you know, I'm still here. Mm-hmm. I'm still doing it. I'm still working. I mean, I'm currently unemployed as an actor.
2: You, you've got some <laughs> other things uh, to deal with in your own own life, right? You have <laughs> a few true. other things going on.
1: That's true. But you know, it, that that unemployed actor thing right. never leaves your body. It's
2: always a little insecure You're
1: here, always yeah. that. You know, when you're not when you're not hired as an actor, mm-hmm. doing something you feel that I'm unemployed right now and this could all go away at any second. And right. I think that's a good thing. Actually. I think that keeps the spark, the bug, the adrenaline pumping to, you know, to find that next thing. And, um, honestly, I, I just, I, I just couldn't be more grateful for all the things that I've done to, to get me here where I'm actually, I'm actually really behind something that I'm super proud of and, um, have the opportunity to, you know, tell the stories that I want to tell, which is what Michelle and I wanted to do over 10 years ago. And holy shit, we're actually doing it. (laughs) Well,
2: congratulations. (laughs) And thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Thank you.
1: no purchase necessary. VGW Group. were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.